Luke chapter 15. <clears throat> now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. He told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He got up and came to his father. <clears throat> but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Now his older brother was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. <clears throat> and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. He became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. 
But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, <clears throat> for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. We come here in our study of the parables to some of the most wonderful and holy ground in all of Scripture. And uh, we'll see that more as we go along. It's going to take more than one time to look at this. But uh, the first thing that we need to realize as we come here, as we approach this chapter, is that we have here not really three separate parables, but one parable with three different aspects to it. One truth viewed from three different angles. <clears throat> Notice in verse 3, And he told them this parable, singular. He told them this parable. And then he starts talking about the man with the hundred sheep, and you get to verse 8, and he says, Or... What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one? See, there's, it's all part of the same parable. And then you get down to uh, verse 11, and he said a certain man had two sons. So this, these things, all three of these things are said to the same people at the same time, and it just Luke just sums it up and says he told them, he spoke to them this parable. So it is one parable, uh, with a threefold presentation. Um, someone has called this whole chapter the parable of the lost possessions. The parable of the lost possessions. Think of this lost possessions. Here's a man who possesses a sheep and it's lost. Here's a woman who possesses a coin and it's lost. Here's a man, and think of the varying values here. Here's a man who possesses a son and he's lost. And so the great uh, value of some of these possessions, what it is to have a lost son. Uh, <clears throat> the parable of the lost possessions. There's a lost sheep. Verses 4 to 7, a lost coin, verses 8 to 10, and a lost son, verses 11 to 32. Really, this nowhere in here is this son called the prodigal son. That's really, in a way, it's too bad that that title is put on this, because he is the lost son. This son of mine was lost. And he's a lost son just the same way as this coin was a lost coin, or the sheep was a lost sheep. And so we ought to think, when we think of this, we ought to think the parable of the lost son, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep. <clears throat> now I say it's important to realize that all three of these make up one parable because when you're in one part and you run into something you can't understand, it's clarified when you read the other part. 
And the Lord's saying the same thing, you see, in different ways. And so it helps you to understand some of these uh, difficulties as we get into it. And we'll see this, I hope, as we go on. The question comes up then, what are the great themes of this threefold parable? And I'm going to let you answer what the great themes are. Uh, In every one of these... We've already talked about this, so it's easy. In every one of these, something is lost. All right, that was, everybody got an A on that one. <laughs> so, but think of this. The great theme, now you say, what's the great theme? <clears throat> what, are the, what are the great themes? Well, in every one of these, something is lost. And in every section <clears throat> of this parable, Uh, What is the attitude of the one who has lost the thing? Great concern, concern, intense concern. Now you could say that in every one of these illustrates that. Intense concern over the thing which had been lost. And that intense concern leads to what? (coughs) Diligent Diligent seeking. Now, you might say, well, how does that come out in the case of this father? Well, the father was diligently seeking. He was there. It it says he saw him while he was yet a long ways off. Now, isn't that something? He must have been going out and standing by that road and looking down that road, thinking that he might come. He saw him a long ways off, and he had not given up hope that one day he would see that son coming down that road. So there was intense concern that led to diligent seeking. And that seeking results in what? Finding. Finding. So the seeking result in every parable, the seeking results in finding. And that finding results in great joy. I like to get some of these adjectives you all have used because that's really true. Great joy, not just joy, at least a great joy. Not just seeking, diligent seeking. Not just concern, but intense concern. Now that's brought out in every one of these, isn't it? Jesus uh, emphasizes those points. Uh, Someone said that this could be called, this chapter, Luke 15, could be called the parable of the four verbs. Now that's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? But you have the verb lose, you have the verb seek, you have the verb find, and you have the verb rejoice. Now that, uh, see how consistent that is? So if someone asks you, what are the great themes of this chapter? Well, you could say uh, there's something lost and there's intense concern. They're seeking over it. And there's finding and there's rejoicing. But um, if we really wanted to take a step further, there's something more than that being said, isn't isn't there? Because you have to ask the question, to whom is this sheep lost or from whom is the sheep lost and from whom is this coin lost and the son lost or another way of saying it who is it 
that's doing the seeking? Who is it that finds? Who is it that's doing the rejoicing? First and foremost, who is it? What's the answer to that? The owner. The owner, and who is that? Who is it? God. God. Now, in other words, after you say these things that are there, the lost thing, the seeking, the concern, the finding, the rejoicing, after you say all that, that's what's, that's what's there, all right. But go one step deeper. What's Jesus telling us? He's saying that's the way God is. That's the way God is. <clears throat> Remember what we've said about these parables. They're not little stories. This is not, these are not little stories here that we can look at and say, well, that's really wonderful. Those, ni those are nice stories. These are descriptions of the way God is. This is a description of invisible reality. God is like this. Now, isn't this amazing? The triune God, and particularly God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the great shepherd, the truth is about him that when he finds one lost sheep and rescues it, he is rejoicing. He is rejoicing so much over one sheep that he rescues. That's what he's telling us. And the truth is that God the Father, who created all the universe with his spoken word, to whom the nations are like the du fine dust in the balance. God the Father, when one wretched sinner in some far corner of this world comes to him, God is rejoicing and he runs to meet that sinner. That's what God's telling us about himself. It's, it's, it is incredible. It, it would be sacrilegious for us to say such a thing as what God says here about himself. He says, as a father, he's looking and he'll run to the person that will head toward him. It is amazing. This is what Jesus is telling us about spiritual reality. And what an encouragement Luke 15 should be to every sinner, to anybody who's casting their eyes toward home, that to know the reception that they will receive from the Father if they will turn back to him. Well, <clears throat> with that overview then, let's begin this morning to look at this threefold parable. Now, we're, we're only going to be able to get started, but we want to look some at these first two. And the question comes up again, what is the key to understanding this parable? Now, we've noted some of the themes. We've seen these basic themes. We've seen the, most, the deepest theme, which is God's seeking heart and love for the sinner. But what's the key to understanding the, uh, the parables? And um, as one of the old Puritans said, I think concerning uh, another, a different parable, he said the key is hanging at the door. And that's the way it is with this parable. The key is hanging at the door. The first two verses are the key. <clears throat> they are the context. And you know, we always have to look at the context to understand what the Lord's saying. Who is he saying this, these parables to? What was the occasion? That gives the key to understanding what he means by some of the things that he says. 
And here's the key in verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now that's the setting, and that's the thing that we have to constantly bear in mind as we read these stories. The Lord is dealing with two groups of people. The one group are these tax gatherers and sinners. The other group is the scribes and the Pharisees. Those are the two groups. And we'll see this as we go along. Verse 1 then. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. Who are these tax gatherers? Uh, King James says publicans. Who are the publicans? Well, they were people that collected taxes on goods that were imported and exported through the land. Now, the way it worked was this. The Romans were in control of everything. And there were guys that had enough money that they could pay a fixed amount to the Roman government for the right to collect taxes themselves. Now, so you picture this rich guy that's got enough money, some rich Jew maybe, and he's got enough money that he can pay a fixed amount to Rome, and then he he has under him chief publicans, and below them lesser publicans, which are most of the people you deal with in the Bible are lesser publicans. Uh, There's one chief publican mentioned, and that's Zacchaeus. He came down out of the tree. He was a chief publican. Uh, You talk about a wicked man before his conversion. But anyway, these publicans collected these taxes or tolls on goods that passed in and out of the country. And uh, even though they paid a fixed fee to Rome for the right to do this, they collected whatever they could get. See, that was the catch. They were, they were extortioners is what it amounted to. Whatever you could get out of somebody, they, they're passing along the road and they've got these goods that uh, they need to pay a toll fee on. And you just double, them, double the amount that the toll cost yesterday, see? And why do you do that? Well, because this poor guy can't do anything about it. And that was what they were known for. And even when you remember when Zacchaeus was converted, he said, Lord, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay him back fourfold. Well, that was what they were known for, noted for, defrauding people and getting more good. And if they, were, uh, they weren't always Jewish people, but if they were Jews, it was even worse because here they are, a traitor to their, their own people and doing this to their own people. So they were despised. Um, one passage in uh, Matthew, the Lord mentions them right along with the harlots, the prostitutes. So he says, he says the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. That's how, how would you like to be categorized as a tax gatherer? And uh, so here's the tax gatherers coming. And here they're not uh, lumped together with... Uh, harlots, but they're lumped together with sinners. All the tax gatherers and the sinners. Who were the sinners? Well, the sinners are people who lived uh, 
careless lives. They didn't care about the law of God. They didn't even try to practice the law of God. So they were irreligious people and uh, just uh, uh, very, what you'd call ungodly, not even trying to live according to the law of God. Uh, people of bad reputation and so on. All of those worst kinds of people, the people, I, I think of uh, when Catherine Booth there at the beginning of the Salvation Army, was it Catherine, not Catherine, but the uh, younger, Evangeline Booth was in Paris. The police came there and they looked through the door and they said every cutthroat and criminal in Paris is in that room tonight. Now that's the way it must have been here. The tax gatherers and the sinners, the bad type. They, you know, somebody would say, so-and-so is listening to Jesus. That guy, he's listening to Jesus. That's what was happening here. The tax gatherers and the sinners. And notice what it says here, and I, I just love this. The tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Now, doesn't that speak volumes about the true God, the true and living God. I mean, when the tax gatherers and sinners draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ, the holiest person in the whole world, that tells you what true holiness is, doesn't it? It's not the stiff, cold, hateful, spiteful type of thing that's called holiness. That's not what it is. It was a warm, loving purity that he had, and those people somehow felt like they, that he was their friend. They could come to him. And they saw the way he had rebuked the sinful, self-righteous attitude of those scribes and Pharisees, and that probably encouraged them a little more, because they knew they were hypocrites too. And that encouraged them to come to him. And so they draw near to him to listen to him. And so that's the setting in verse 1. Verse 2 both the Pharisees and the scribes, and we talked some about scribes last week, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. They began to grumble. <clears throat> now, just to make a little note in your mind, have you ever seen, have we read about anything as we read through here about anybody that grumbled when somebody that was bad was getting shown mercy? See, it tells you how to understand things that are coming. They begin to grumble. And they said, this fellow, literally, this fellow receives sinners and eats with them. This fellow. It's a contemptuous type of thing. <clears throat> Beloved, religion will condemn the purest and best things and let the rottenest things go right by. That's what we have here. They are contemptuous about Jesus and condemning him. We ought to expect that kind of thing. <clears throat> this fellow, this man, receives sinners. Now, some of the most glorious things ever spoken about the Lord Jesus Christ were spoken by his enemies. They thought this was a terrible thing that they could lay upon him. This man receives sinners. And actually, it was one of the most wonderful things that could ever be said about him. He receives sinners. Another passage, you remember, uh, they called him a friend of sinners. Boy, that would really, you could really, you know, heap uh, abuse and condemnation upon Jesus by saying that you're you friend of sinners. 
And yet, that is something that as sinners, that is one of the most delightful, most wonderful things, one of the most wonderful names of Jesus is that he's a friend of sinners. Now, get this. Whatever condition you're in this morning, Jesus receives sinners. He receives sinners. Isn't that wonderful? He receives sinners. There's a day coming when he will condemn sinners and put them in hell. But right now he's receiving sinners. <clears throat> he is willing to let you come to him and to take you in. Now they said, this man receives sinners, and of all things he even eats with them. Now, <clears throat> to associate with a tax gatherer was considered defiling and contaminating. Those Pharisees, one thing you'd never see them doing was talking to a tax gatherer. They wouldn't be spending any time around it. But here's Jesus not only associating with them, but eating with them. That was outrageous. That was un Nobody would do such a thing as that. And a lot of times, apparently, he was often seen in the company of tax gatherers and sinners. Eating with them. He would eat with them and spend time with them. That was an amazing thing. Jesus even chose a tax collector as one of his disciples. He chose for one of the twelve a tax collector. Now, this is so wonderful and amazing. And we already talked about Zacchaeus, one, one of the chief publicans that the Lord brought salvation to his household. <clears throat> well, verses 3 and 4, And he told them this parable. In light of what's come ahead here, he told them this parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? How does the Lord approach these Pharisees? Well, he talks about shepherds and what should be done with lost sheep. What do shepherds do with lost sheep? They despise them. You know, that sheep's lost. You know, just with contempt. That sheep's lost. <clears throat> do, do you ignore lost sheep? Is that the way you deal with lost sheep? Just ignore them? Despise them? Ignore them? Maybe just neglect them and not pay any attention? So he says, What man among you, if you have a hundred sheep, now he brings it home to them, what man among you? You have a hundred sheep. Look, one of them's missing, so what? You still got 99. Don't even worry about it. But they knew that that was not the case. Any shepherd that was worth anything would go out after that one sheep. Now he's saying, <clears throat> surely God's standard of action is at least as high as yours. God is surely at least as good as you are. So he said, which man of you, if he has a hundred sheep 
and one of them strays, won't he go after it? Now, the fact is, many times in the Old Testament, God is presented as a shepherd, and they knew that. 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is a shepherd to his people. Isaiah 40 and verse 11, he says, Like a shepherd he will tend his flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. So, uh, promises concerning what God will do as a shepherd. Now one more, let me just read it to you, Ezekiel 34. Now these, see, he's talking to people who knew the Bible. He's talking to scribes and Pharisees. They studied this stuff all the time, and they missed everything. Now here he says, in Ezekiel 34, God says this, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he's among his scattered sheep, so I'll care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I'll feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I'll feed them in a good pasture their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights <clears throat> of Israel. There they will lie down in good grazing ground. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. Now this is talking about Christians. This is talking about the new covenant. God says, I'm going to go out. To the far reaches, and I will seek my flock. You see what Jesus is talking about here to them? Jesus read this just like they had, except he understood it. And what it meant was, God says, I'm going to go out personally. I'll go out seeking and gathering my sheep from, from the four corners of the earth and gather them all together, and I'm going to feed them myself. That's what it is if you're a Christian. You've been sought out by the Good Shepherd and brought into the fold, and gathered into one, and fed. What else does he say? He says, I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I'll feed them with judgment. Now you know who the fat and strong were. They were standing right there, gloating, or condemning the Lord for talking to those weak ones and he says them I'll feed with judgment well <clears throat> notice about this shepherd as we go on here back in Luke 15 <clears throat> he goes out in search of the one which is lost and notice this is no token search you know, somebody that's searching for something doesn't really care about it. If you've lost something valuable to you, you know, it it's it's real to you to find that thing. Now, you can tell somebody else about it. Say, I lost it right over here in the grass. They come over there and kick around. I don't see it. That's a token search. It says he searches until he finds it. 
So that shepherd went out, and he it may be maybe it was a cold, rainy day, and he went out and he searched until he was tired and cold and hungry, and then he searched more, and he kept on going until he found it. So it was not a token search. <clears throat> you know, a lot of times um, we talk to people. Try to get that lost sheep back in, in kind of a token way. You know, you say a few things, and well, I've done my duty now. I can put it, you don't have to feel guilty about that. I witnessed to them. But that wasn't the attitude here, was it? That's not the Lord's attitude. He goes after that sheep and he stays with it <clears throat> until it's found. And then verses 5 and 6 When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. He puts it on his shoulders and carries it back. We saw that with the Good Samaritan, didn't we? He put that man on his beast and carried him. And there was great rejoicing. Verse 7. Now we'll come back to some of this after we've gone over more. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, first problem, who are these 99 righteous people that don't need to repent? That presents a problem, doesn't it? He says they're righteous, and he said they don't need to repent. And uh, it clearly they correspond to those back there in the flock, see already. Now, who are they? Well, this has brought up some wild interpretations by a lot of good men. Uh, even Matthew Henry takes this uh, first approach. He says these righteous ones that don't need to repent, only, only ones in the whole world that could be is the angels that didn't sin. Now, there's a lot of commentators and Bible students, teachers, that think that the 99 righteous ones are the angels in heaven. And so here's all the angels who never sinned, and the Lord comes down to the one man <laughs> that did sin. It just doesn't fit. That's not it. That isn't it. Can't be it. Some say these 99 righteous people that don't need to repent are covenant children. You know, they've grown up little Christians all their lives. And they've basically uh, lived a good moral life. They've never gotten off track. Now, you talk about dangerous. If you ever find anybody that doesn't need to repent, there's something wrong. I mean, if you hadn't already repented, that's the only way you'll ever find anybody that doesn't need to repent. And uh, that brings to another interpretation. Some say, well, this is the glorified saints in heaven. They're already safe. They don't need to repent. They're perfect. <clears throat> that doesn't fit, does it? Who is this 99 righteous people that don't need to repent? Well, it's clear there's two groups here, isn't it? There's these publicans and, and sinners, and there's these scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees are the 99 people who don't need to repent. They're righteous and don't need to repent. Now you say, how in the world could that be? Well, 
Alan's a teacher. He knows what this is like. Suppose Alan said, he said, I, I would lot rather have one student who's ignorant and who asks questions. I would much rather have that than a whole room full of people who already know everything there is to know about engines. Now, do you understand what he's saying? <laughs> See, you don't have to go search around. Now, who are these people that know everything there is to know? There aren't any such people, but they're people that think they do. They're people that think they do. And that's exactly what he's talking about here, in their own eyes. Now, somebody might say, well, he doesn't say they, they think that they're righteous and so on. Well, <clears throat> that's not a problem if you just look... Hold your place here and look over in John 9. Verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Now, there's a lot of people that don't see. They're, they're tax gatherers and sinners. They don't see. He said, I came into the world that those who don't see may see. And that those who see, in other words, they think they see, may be made blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, your sin remains. Now you'll have to come back to this and think about it. We won't get into it again. But the fact is, the fact that he describes somebody in that way, he's describing them according to their own estimation of themselves. Now you remember that he told this parable about the tax, uh, was it the tax gatherer and the Pharisee? They went into the temple to pray. He told this parable to those who viewed themselves as righteous and viewed others, thought themselves to be righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now that's the situation here exactly. They thought of themselves as righteous and they viewed others with contempt. Well, that's the 99. We can't press these parables too far, you see. Uh, you've got to take the meaning for what the Lord gave, gave to it. And uh, there it is. Now, the thing is, though, the Lord's emphasis is not on the 99. <laughs> that's not what He's talking about. We had to get that out of the way first, but that's not the big emphasis. The emphasis is on the one. <clears throat> the importance of the one. Do we get this? It's not just a nice little thought. Jesus is saying the way it really is. One person is that important. And he's saying one person is that important to God. Not just to, you know, in general. That one person is that important to God. One time Dick and I went to 
some meetings in McCormick Place there in Chicago. And they, they had one meeting room in there uh, that was just a, I mean, it was just a flat top room. And uh, out in the center of that room, you walk quite a ways to get out there, but out in the center of the room, there were some chairs set up. They said there's, uh, after, at some point in the meeting, they said there's 5,000 people here. Now those 5,000 chairs were sitting out in the middle of the room far enough that you had to walk way out there to get to those chairs. How big is this room? And yet if you fill the room full of nameless faces, God is saying if that room was full and every single one of them knew him except for one, that that one is the focus of his concern. It, it, it's amazing. That one. Remember what it says in Hebrews, lest, he says, take heed lest there be in any one of you. Now, this, you talk about a test for, for each one of us and for pastors. <clears throat> do, I, do I, am I concerned about the one? If everybody in this room was a Christian except one, would that be where all my heart and my attention is? I mean, we're content to just let people slip through the cracks. A lot of times. This one and that one, you know, just... It's amazing. The Lord is concerned about the one. Christ Jesus will go after one person. And He did go after one person. He describes the salvation of us. If you're a Christian... He describes your salvation in terms of one individual. And it is really true that if you had been the only lost person in the world, he would have done everything that he did just for you. In fact, he did do everything he did just for you. He didn't die for some faceless mass. He died for this one and that one and that one. Everybody that is gathered together in this room that knows the Lord was died for and sought out separately and individually by the shepherd who cares for one at a time. Isn't that something? He cares for one. He cared for you that much. Paul says he loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself for me particularly and loved me that much. Everything he did, everything you read about in the scriptures, if you're a Christian, he did that all for just for you. <clears throat> well, let's go on to verses 8 and 9, then we'll try to sum things up here. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Now, this woman is evidently poor. Uh, these silver coins were worth a denarius. And that was, uh, you remember, maybe, we've been going over a lot of things about money. Denarius isn't worth very much. One day's wages for common labor. She only had ten of those coins. But when you only got ten of them, and you lose one of them, it means something to you. For a rich man to give a tenth means that he gives up the trim off of his yacht. For a poor man to give a tenth means that he gives up a piece of bread off of his table. And for somebody to lose a tenth 
it's important. And this woman, you know, she's lost it. And the house is some poor little hut. It's small and it's dark and it's got a dirt floor. And it either has no windows or it has very small windows. And so she has to light up a lamp to try to search for this thing, diligently to search for it. And she gets a broom and begins to sweep around in the dirt and light up the dark corners and try to find this thing. And so she sweeps and it says she searches carefully. She searches. Someone suggested the first part of this parable, the shepherd part, shows the divine tenderness. Here's a shepherd seeking this sheep. This part shows the divine earnestness. I mean, you get a picture of this woman. There's not, there's not no compassion here exactly. I mean, this is a lost coin, but she's serious about finding this thing. And she searches carefully until... And verse 9, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. <clears throat> in the same way I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, how can we sum up then what we, where we've come so far, these two parables that we've looked at? How can we sum up the teaching of these parables? First of all, all the way through, and we haven't gotten to the last one yet, but you know it. We see in every one of these the strain heart of man. That's how men are presented here by the Lord Jesus Christ. They're lost. And the sheep <clears throat> is strained. Uh, you know, really, three types of sinners you could picture here. The first one... Uh, the strange sheep, just stupid, senseless, you know, maybe it's nibbling grass and it nibbles it away, away from the rest of the flock and the next thing you know, it's lost. Now that, there's one aspect of our experience as sinners that's like that, isn't it? In a way, when you look back, you didn't know that you were going away. There's a way that that's true. You aren't even aware of it. And just little by little, all of a sudden, you're lost. You don't know where in the world you are. Now, think of this Think of this word lost. Lost to God. Worthless to Him, not, not doing any good in His service, not serving Him. Lost to fellowship. There's no communion, no life. That person is not a part of the people of God. They're lost. They're out there gone. And they're, but they're lost to themselves. If a man's lost... He doesn't know his way back. That's part of the way it is. If this sheep is lost, he doesn't know his way back. Now, we'll get the picture of the prodigal son. He was lost in a different way. There's all different aspects of this. But anyway, <clears throat> the one type of sinner is like the sheep who nibbles his way off. And uh, one aspect of our experience is like that. There's another aspect here of this lost coin. And this, I talk about people that just kind of fall through the cracks. There are people that have just fallen down. They're not doing much. They're not going anywhere. They just fell through and they're in the dirt. Laying there in the dirt, lost. 
forgotten. And then the third one, the prodigal son, which we'll start on more willing next time, there's the type of person that deliberately just, and see, if you look at your own experience, all three of those things are involved. You're like a coin that got dropped and forgotten and lost. You're like a sheep and nibbled a, their, themselves away from God. You're like a prodigal who demanded your rights and rebelled and just went out and squandered everything. All of that's true of yourself. Anyway, the strained heart of man. <clears throat> what else here? The seeking heart of Christ. The seeking heart of Christ. It did not matter to that shepherd. You could not console that shepherd by saying, look, you've already got 99 that are still okay. That didn't console him. You couldn't console that woman by saying, look, you've still got nine. Look at these nine. Look how nice they look and everything. That didn't console her. The Lord's telling us what he's like. The seeking heart of Christ. He goes out and seeks that lost sheep of his. Third thing that we see here, Christ's ability to find. God's ability to find. Every single one of these parables, they, the, the, the coin is found, the sheep, it's, it doesn't say if, it says when he finds it. God is persistent in tracking down that one that he has chosen for himself. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I'm going to call them. They will, they will hear my voice. And there shall be one fold, one flock, and one uh, body. So Christ's ability to find is emphasized in every one of these. Every, every single time the lost thing is found. And it's found by God, found by Christ. Now, <clears throat> look at this. This is something. Verse 6, Rejoice with me, for I have found. How did this sheep ever get back? I have found it. That's what happened. And the, the woman, what does she say? She says in verse, <coughs> verse 9, Rejoice with me, for I have found. Now, how is this translated in terms of man's experience? Well, he tells us in verse 7, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And verse 10, There's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, now look at this. Isn't this obvious? If you see a sinner repenting, that does not mean that he's got a softer heart than everybody else or that he has some spark of goodness left in him that caused him to say yes to the Lord and uh, his neighbor said no. If, if there is repentance in anybody's life, there's one reason why there's repentance. He got found. I found it. You see that? I found it. And the result of me finding him is he repents. That's the proof of being found by the shepherd and by the woman who's lost the coin. Repentance equals being found by Christ. <clears throat> and then the fourth thing, the joy. Joy in the heart of the Lord. Now, I... I I really like this here in verse 6 and in verse 9. 
Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Rejoice, verse 9, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. That's probably telemarketing. Don't, <laughs> don't be concerned. <laughs> Did you get this? Rejoice with me. A legitimate call this time. <clears throat> Whenever the Lord seeks out his sheep and finds him, he is rejoicing. And he calls upon others to rejoice with him. Now, the way the Lord describes this, he says, <clears throat> first of all, he says there'll be joy in the presence of the angels. Now, I don't think you can not necessarily say the angels are rejoicing. I think they are, just because of the God that they have. But uh, there's joy in the presence of the angels. In other words, in heaven, God rejoices. God is rejoicing. But he calls others to rejoice with him. Now think of, the, think of the joy when you see somebody become a Christian, the joy that you have. Have you ever realized and thought that actually you're just rejoicing with the one that really is getting joy out of this? You're just one of the lesser ones. These friends and neighbors that came, they were happy. But they weren't near as happy as the one that had lost and found. And so what we're doing is we're entering into God's rejoicing over the lost sheep or the lost coin that he's found. Well, we'll see more about these things, Lord willing, next time as we go on to consider the prodigal son. Some, some have said it's the greatest, and I, I think even secular writers have said, the greatest short story ever written or spoken. Jesus didn't write. He didn't write anything. Think of this. He didn't write anything. He affected world history more than anyone who's ever written anything, never wrote anything. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden from the foundation of the world. Well, Lord, what are these parables? Here's the divine Messiah coming into the world. Here's the great teacher coming. I bet these things are going to be really hard to understand. Use a lot of big words. You can really impress people when you use those big words. That wasn't the way it was, was it? He says, it's like the kingdom of heaven is like this man that takes seed and goes out, or this woman that loses a coin, or this man that has sheep. That's the way these parables are. Lord willing, we'll go on next time. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> our Father, our great God, we marvel that you would ever say these things about yourself, that you care about one individual sheep of yours that's out there lost. You care about 
that one person so much that you actually run to meet them when they turn to you. And uh, we just, uh, we thank you, thank you, O oh God. The, you said, I dwell in a high and holy place. Thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and broken spirit to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Lord, we, we thank you that you not only dwell in unapproachable light, but you dwell with the humble and contrite and broken spirit and that you receive sinners. We thank you that you can do this. You made a way that you could do it. You wanted to do it, and you made a way that you could do it by, by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die for our sins so that we could come through the blood of Jesus into your presence. We thank you this morning for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. And I think of those that are still... Uh, walking around in their own rags, the rags of their own righteousness, pretended good deeds and th thoughts that they have in their minds that they're, they're pretty good. After all, they're not as bad as so-and-so. Lord, we pray that you'd <clears throat> expose the, the true nature of their heart and uh, cause them to flee to you for refuge and for, for cleansing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.